Progressive Rugby League. Hello. Let's play a word association game, shall we? Okay, I'll go first. Rugby League Larrikin, one word. Yes, Tom Rodonicus, good one, Patty. Jimmy Maloney, love it, Ahmed. Who else we got? Fatty Vorden, yeah, I think so. Matty Johns, sure, I guess. Brandon Smith, yeah, okay, modern touch. I see what you're doing there, Sandy. Look, it's no secret Australians love a larrikin. And what's not to love? They have a bit of a laugh. Don't take things too seriously. And they've got the common touch that always seems to keep them out of the grasp of the tall poppy label. Maybe part of the attraction for me, John P. Duncan, is that larrikins portray many traits I convince myself I have, despite what objective observers might note and have noted as overwhelming evidence to the contrary. I wonder if Australia's love of the larrikin can help at least in part explain one mystery that I've never been quite able to wrap my head around. That mystery being that out of the dozens or even hundreds of big western world cities where rugby football is played, Sydney and Brisbane are two of the only places where the league version holds sway. And not only holds sway from a rugby perspective, but is their city's biggest football code. Hey, don't hold me to this. I understand there are plenty of explanations, social, political, the quirks of timing. But I wonder if the Australian attraction to the larrikin is one of the pillars of why rugby league has been able to maintain its foothold in Australia's rugby cities all this time, through the turbulent early years and even after the Super League War saddled the sport with such an off-putting odour. After all, if a sport could take the mantle as Australia's larrikin code, what would it be? Rugby union? (laughs) Please. Golf? Tennis? Come on. Cricket, maybe it's certain flickers in history, but in any case, rugby league would surely have to be right up there. But like any label, larrikin is a fluid concept, and like anything popular, the concept of the larrikin is always at risk of being co-opted, appropriated by charlatans looking to sell us something we don't want without us even noticing. And it is the changing face of the larrikin that is the subject of the latest quarterly essay entitled Top Blokes, The Larrikin Myth, Class and Power. Top Blokes charts the larrikin's role in Australia's social and political history, and while the essay's scope is broad, rugby league is rarely far away from relevance, and at times, influence. So what is rugby league's relationship with the larrikin in 2021? Will rugby league and larrikinism always be intrinsically linked? And how do you spot a fake, and why does it matter? Well, joining me to discuss is Lech Blaine, author of Top Blokes, as well as the magnificent book Car Crash and Memoir. He is also a rugby league fan and former budding larrikin. Lech Blaine, welcome back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Hey, mate. Hey, guy. Yeah, really well, thanks. And thanks very much for coming along. Congrats on the essay. Uh, I just mentioned a bit tongue-in-cheek, I guess, about you being a former budding larrikin. But that's kind of that's kind of true, right? I mean, I read your excellent memoir, Car Crash, and I recognize a lot of myself in your description of your younger self. And I assume a lot of people, males particularly, would recognize similarities too in trying to position ourselves as the, the bloke with the, the white embrace, the the tiger with the funny turn of phrase and the laid-back demeanour. Why was that persona of the larrikin so attractive to us, even when, and I'm speaking for myself here, even when it wasn't a natural fit? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it was just a cultural thing, I guess. I I grew up, I was the youngest in a big family. My dad was a pretty classic sort of larrikin. He was very much a rugby league administrator and ex-player, but had an injury as a a workplace injury as a teenager, so I couldn't play, but, yeah, I was very much brought up surrounded by people that you would consider larrikins and my first cousin was Elfie Langer who was probably the preeminent larrikin at least in Queensland while I was growing up so yeah I, I had a lot of people around me that I sort of aspired to 
to be like. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I was also quite bookish and academic, and so yeah, I, I guess I, I suffered from a bit of an identity crisis as a as a teenager, and probably overcompensated for my bookishness with. Um, trying to to push the envelope and in some ways probably ended up more of a larrikin than someone like my brother Steve who was like a, a representative rugby league player and played juniors for Queensland mm. and was a really good player but never felt that sort of need I guess because he, he didn't need to prove himself. Yeah. Now as you just mentioned as also you note in the essay and book Al Langer, Alfie Langer, Alf uh, is your cousin and Alf seems the quintessential authentic rugby league larrikin who just about everyone except maybe Brian Smith, gravitated towards. And I wonder, I wonder if you could relate the story of when you ventured to ANZ Stadium in Brizzy, I think it was 2001, to see your cousin and ageing Al Langer return to the Origin Arena from the UK to heroically lead Queensland to an incredible series victory. It was a, an enormous occasion and moment. And it wasn't just because it was the return of a, a star player, sure, that was a big part of it, but it was magnified because of who he was and who he is, a larrikin. It wasn't just anyone returning, Alf was returning. Can you take us back to what you experienced that night and whether in hindsight you learnt something about the role and even the, the power of the larrikin in Australian society? Well, yeah, it just it encapsulated everything and, that, and that's why he, that was the thing about him coming back in that position is that he'd always been, despite being, you know, for a decade probably in, in the top handful of players in the code and at times probably the best player in the code, uh, captain of Australia and captain of the Broncos to four grand final wins, mm. but always had this underdog type reputation just because even when he first got a run for Queensland, he was considered too small. So, yeah, there was just always this sense that maybe he aligned more clearly in the imagination of like the average Queenslander than even someone like Wally Lewis, who mm. was probably regarded as Queensland's greatest player of all time, but was always sort of meant to be there, if that makes sense. Like he, yeah, like he, on a pedestal. Yeah, he, he looked the part. He was sort of like the biggest, toughest sort of half going around, whereas there was something, yeah, so unselfconscious and not particularly self-important and, and all those traits that we love about larrikins. And, and that was the thing about him was that, yeah, unlike me as a teenager, he, he wasn't trying to be a larrikin. He was sort of just like he was that person. It wasn't a thing that he was consciously trying to do and I think people recognize that and obviously he was just such a beloved figure during that period and then yeah to get back and and do what he did was just sort of like I mean as a kid I was just you know like he was a lot older than me and you know I regarded him as more of a celebrity than a family member and you know it's it's not like we were having Christmases together or anything like that so it it was very much a a one-sided relationship like I was just obsessed with the guy and then yeah I was um nine so it was pretty impressionable and yeah Yeah. that that happened and it was just sort of like the consummation of my whole early childhood which was just obsessed with rugby league and while also having a bit of a chip on my shoulder about different things and yeah yeah, so it just sort of I think not just for for us for me and my dad but just for people in Queensland as well it seemed to be this this moment that just yeah that just proved a lot of our I guess beliefs about the ability for the underdog to achieve Mm. incredible things yeah yeah fantastic it's a great part of your book and and also i think you mentioned in the essay as well it's just it sounds like it was just an incredible atmosphere and uh and obviously having like a personal stake in that as well i would have made it uh, pretty special now like why do larrikins have a special power in Australia? Is it unique to Australia? And why is it important to take the pulse of the Australian larrikin in, in 2021? Well, yeah, it is. I think it is pretty 
Yeah, I'm not a historian, so my interest, I guess, is more in politics. And so I don't think I necessarily provided a definitive answer about why this, like, larrikin exists or mm. how it compares to elsewhere. But it is, like, a pretty unique sort of thing, I think. Like, there's there's lots of parts of Australia that we idealise and treat as if it's a special trait unique to Australia, like the way that we valorise as, as soldiers, for example, or even drinking to a certain extent. Like, we very much see them as something unique to us, whereas they're not really. Mm. But there is certain traits in, t- in terms of our anti-authoritarianism or at least our perceived ideas about anti-authoritarianism that don't translate as much to even, obviously, the UK or, or even America, mm. and certain even ideas about collectivism. And, and I think that the reason for a lot of that was probably the, the popularity of these figures who were seen as larrikins within Australian culture, which, yeah, you, you might not necessarily see within um, other cultures quite as much. Yeah. And in terms of the changing nature of the larrikin, obviously you're writing about it in 2021. There's a, there's a history there that goes back, you know, over a century. What made you want to go deep on the Australian larrikin in 2021? Well, it, it just kept on coming up in, like, discussions about political correctness. It, it's something that just gets sort of brought up, uh, especially by your right-wing columnists. And it, it, I just found that so sort of, like, <laughs> hypocritical but also fascinating that these figures such as, like, Andrew Bolt and Rowan Dean were sort of claiming the Larrikin tradition as their own, which is, like, so obviously absurd for me. <laughs> and then more broadly than that, the way that certain mannerisms or vernacular of, of this larrikin figure had been adopted by conservative politicians to appeal to, mm. to voters who might economically, historically associate with the Labor Party and, and the way that that their disillusionment with Labor was then, I guess, exploited by conservatives who were able to appeal to them using this persona uh, mm. of the larrikin and, and talking about mateship and talking about a fair go and tapping into all that egalitarianism while at the same time not actually committing themselves in any tangible way to the redistribution of wealth or, or even of position and, and power. So, yeah, I, that's something that I just felt very intuitively and then I wanted to just dive into it. And I, I talked about doing it with my publisher, it would have been a few years ago, and it was actually before the rise of Scott Morrison. It, it was just something that I threw out there. And at the time, I was very much more thinking about people within the sporting realm Mm-hmm. And also Hawk to a certain extent, it probably hadn't really fully crystallised the way that the Liberal Party might use that. And then subsequently, uh, Scott Morrison became Prime Minister and, mm. and yeah, really crystallised all of the strategy and, and techniques of, that Howard used to a certain extent, but I don't think that he went the full larrikin. And I think that Morrison came along and really went the full sort of <laughs> the full larrikin. He's gone the full larrikin, yeah. And we'll get to sort of the, the go sharkies side of our Prime Minister later on. But, yeah, that, that is a great thing about your essay, I think, that it puts the magnifying glass to the way larrikinism has been co-opted by certain people. And it helped me, in, in any case, understand what's been happening in plain sight but has been really hard to put a finger on and to put words to explain. And it made me think, you know, the whole larrikin pretense thing Yes, it's a, a technique used to varying extents by politicians and public figures, but, gee, you can make an argument that it's at the core of the Murdoch business model, you know, bringing people in through sport, wondering aloud why people are more uptight than they used to be, and then, you know, lighting the fuse of outrage and, and grievance. But, you know, they bring people in the door through sport, the biggest sports, the most coverage, dominated by top blokes, and then once you're in, You'll be exposed to other blokes through other channels and in other pages, you know, buzzing in your ear, you know, what's what's all this about political correctness stuff and, you know, 
can't people take a joke anymore? So it's, it's interesting how it kind of, uh, the essay made me think more broadly beyond my rugby league lens and beyond even the, the lens you put on it as well. Yeah, well, I, I went down even more of a, there's quite a bit that got cut where I went down a, a rabbit hole. Not so much a rabbit hole, but I, I just started to uh, really analyse the relationship between News Corp, sport and politics, mm. which I guess it started to become, I, I did this with a few different subjects within the essay, like Hawke to a certain extent, it started to become like a Bob Hawke essay, and so I had to cut back some of that, yeah. and then it started to become like a News Corp essay, and so I had to cut back on some of that. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I think that that was intrinsic to the success of the Murdoch agenda, which we now see sort of prevailing as as really like the driving force behind what, what's happening with politics yeah. in Australia. And that simply doesn't happen, I don't think, without Super League and without them subsequently getting the AFL rights as well. Yeah. Now, let's drill down a bit further in terms of the uh, the Australian larrikin and, and how the Australian larrikin is changing what are the, the potential paths, good or bad, for the Australian larrikin into the future? Is the future of the larrikin being fought over? Is this what we're seeing at the moment? To a certain extent, yeah. Like, a, And I, I guess I wanted to have that fight in the SA with your Andrew Bolts and with your Rowan Deans and, and so forth and who any sort of progressive agenda gets accused of political correctness and being the anti-larrikin to a certain extent. And I wanted to flesh out the ways that these people who get demonised for being politically correct are often actually more, in a lot of ways, more true larrikins than a lot of the people that we do hold up as larrikins it's purely because they have certain mannerisms or because they're white blokes. They sort of can claim that larrikin mantle. But then what I sort of worked out by talking to people who I thought did go against the status quo and who were anti-authoritarian is that they, they don't really care for the larrikin. They don't want to... They don't necessarily want to claim that word. Like, at the end of the day, it is just a word. This is sort of semantics, I get. But my ultimate thing was more just seeing how anti-authoritarianism is crushed within Australia and the ways that it might tap more into popular sentiment around all of the, you know, the industrial complex of the Murdoch media and Mm. the success of the Liberal Party federally. Like, how do we link back up with the average person to to make them realise that that a lot of these people who are getting demonised actually are on the side of the so-called battler or on the side of the underdog. Mm. Yeah, and an interesting point you make about the label of larrikin, I guess it's kind of like you can't give yourself a nickname and if you're calling yourself a larrikin, you're probably not, you know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the very subtle thing about Morrison is that he's really a, a politician who discharges images. Like, he does this in a lot of ways, but he's very hard to pin down, whether it's on policy. He's not someone who's offered all of his opinions throughout his adult life through the media, whereas prior prime ministers had spent mm. much of their adult life doing that. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he does that to a certain extent with this sort of stuff. Like, you're not going to hear Scott Morrison call himself a battler mm. or call himself a larrikin because that would immediately kill it. And you, yeah. you can very much get into the argument of, of what he's trying to do. But, yeah, when I talk to someone like my brother John in Bundaberg, who's a rugby league nut and played it all of his life mm-hmm. and coached it and, and votes for the Liberal Party. Like, and he has absolutely loved ScoMo, and he just said that was one of the sort of breakthrough things where he was just like, like, ScoMo is a larrikin. Mm. Like, that's that's just who he is. Like, he's a, he loves a beer and he loves going to the footy. He's just like one of us. Yeah. Which, you know, isn't like a forensic <laughs> discovery or, or, or anything, but that's the effect of the whole persona. That's what the persona is looking for. Yeah. Whether you call that a larrikin or whether you call that a battler or whether you call that whatever that's like the effect 
Yeah, absolutely. I was going to save this for later, but let's go to the the sort of federal politics and and relationship with rugby league. And, you know, there is a federal election coming up in Australia within, what, six six or eight months. And now rugby league voters have obviously always been important to winning elections, you know, here and in the UK. But why does it seem like the concept of winning the rugby league vote is only a fairly recent phenomenon. Is, is market segmentation now just becoming more explicit in politics? Is it a reflection that rugby league is being dragged into culture, war terrain? Uh, what are your reflections there? Yeah, totally. It's a little bit of a coincidence, but then also just it is more pronounced in Australia because the support base is so much larger and the support base in a, in a lot of ways helps decide elections. Uh, you know, you need more than the rugby league vote to win an election, but a lot of these marginal seats, uh, especially in Queensland, like a rugby league seats. Mm. And so, as, as I say in the essay, Morrison had nothing to gain from presenting himself who he is, which is a rugby union fan, because those rugby union seats, there's not that many of them, and they've always voted Liberal. Mm. Uh, so he's very much tilting himself towards the seats that he needs to win or, or that Labor might win, mm. which are those outer suburban, regional and, and rural seats in, in Queensland and New South Wales. It's not that there, there aren't those seats in other states, it's just that there's a lot more of them in New South Wales and Queensland because they're, they're decentralised states with large populations. Mm. And so it, it, it's really interesting because it played out to some extent at the UK election where they lost a lot of these rugby league seats for the first time ever, which had always voted for Labor and, mm. and switched to the Tories. It's I don't think that you'd see Boris Johnson reinvent himself as a rugby league fan, in quite the same way. No. Uh, I think that that's... A, that's because I don't think that it is quite as important in the UK. Mm. And B, I, I don't think that the basis of social class in the UK would allow that. It would just be too obvious. Yeah. He, he's from the south of England and he went to Oxbridge, one or the other. So, like, for, for him to do that, it just couldn't... Ha- like, it literally couldn't happen. Yeah. It, it, it's too black and white. Things are a little bit more... Ambiguous with social class in Australia, and so you can get this guy who who never had any affinity for rugby league whatsoever, yeah. make the realization that, that this is who he needs to be appealing to, and, and then really make it the central part of his like. Outside of having a wife and kids, I would say that it is the, the central part of his public persona. Yeah, and it links to a quote that you have in your essay from the writer Richard Flanagan, the author, um, where he says, "Class in most places is about." making the differences visible, whereas class in Australia is about making differences invisible. And I guess that gives ScoMo the ability to, you know, play that role that uh, wouldn't necessarily come naturally. Now, you spoke to Anthony Albanese, Labor leader of the federal opposition, lifetime Souths fan, uh, was there fighting to get the Rabbitohs reinstated all those years ago. You spoke to him about a lot of things for the essay, but uh, Scott Morrison's come to Jesus conversion to rugby league fan obviously came up. Now, there's a moment in the essay where you quote Anthony Albanese as saying, he doesn't even like rugby league. There's a maybe a tinge of bitterness about it. Understandable, of course. Now, I'm curious if we accept that the, the Go the Sharkies persona has played really well for Scott Morrison, and if the argument is that that persona is a prime example of what a, a phony larrikin he is, perhaps, why hasn't uh, Albanese called him out on this specific point he calls him out on a lot of stuff you know politics is like that but on this point a point where he can actually genuinely say hey this rugby league stuff you know i'm the real deal it's in my dna look at my record uh he he just seems pretty quiet on it do you agree and and why would that be totally i I don't i think that his his summation of it is that it's and 
I guess in the context of coronavirus as well, it would just seem quite trivial to a lot of people and they just wouldn't understand the relevance, especially in the southern states. But I think it also goes to this other point, the historical point within the essay about how social class plays out within both the parties and Philip Adams has that great line about where he talks about how the Liberals for a long time now, it's not a recent phenomenon, even though a lot of them come from quite blue-blooded sort of backgrounds, ham up the, the matiness and their affinity for the common man, so to speak, mm. common woman. And the Labor Party, a lot of the politicians who are, even the ones who, who are quite working class, are very much trying to escape the gravity of class. Mm. And I think that there is, I think that the Liberal Party and News Corp have gaslighted the Labor Party so successfully about class that that the Labor Party, especially like a federal leader before an election, really doesn't want to go there mm. too much. I don't think Albanese wants people to see him as like the ultimate larrikin because I, I don't think that he thinks that the ultimate larrikin would win an election, while, at least while leading Labor, because right. the people who decide elections are quite suspicious about the Labor Party and, and are sort of looking for a safe pair of hands if they are to switch over. So mm. he's, and that's what he's tried to be. I, I don't know whether I 100% agree with that. I, like, personally, there's been a part of me at times that has wished that he would just go the full bogan and, and, and really lean into all of that stuff. Maybe that's just because of who I am and where mm. I came from. And would that work? Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, it's certainly interesting because. It's not something that obviously he talks about, and 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 yeah, to a, to a certain extent, you can sort of see it. Like it's like people might look at it and go, "Well, you're splitting hairs. Like, what's the what's yeah. the difference?" But you know, I think that it just goes to that the, the taboo nature of, of social class in Australia. Mm. And what you're saying there kind of links to one of the other themes in your essay, really the the contradiction in progressive politics of you know representing the marginalised, you know, staking a claim for equality, yet having a, a blind spot willing or otherwise when it comes to class you know a bit of a lack of interest in the lives of of the working class perhaps and, and rugby league is actually relevant to that you know for example i, I think of the guardian uh, a news organization I, I quite like obviously a left-leaning website they take the lead on many important issues of our time you know climate equality all that sort of thing yet in their their sport pages you know the the sport of the working class rugby league is nowhere to be seen most days and and look, it's it's not a huge deal, and I, I don't necessarily blame them. I'm guessing they know their readers really well, and they probably have data that shows readers would rather read about Aussie rules or soccer or rugby union. But I, I raise it to show the, the contradiction or, or maybe the juxtaposition, I suppose is the better word, between the issues that animate progressive politics, particularly around equality, equity, and the reality that the lives of many that are animated by these issues are very different to the lives of working-class people. And I, I really... I don't say it as a criticism. It's just something that we, you know, they need to be aware of. And I think it's an interesting, interesting thing that you raised in the essay as well. Yeah, it is. It is totally true. Like, that's why it's actually not trivial. Mm. <laughs> like, it's deathly serious. For like, sport is a deathly serious subject for a lot of people. And when, when you talk about working class people as an amorphous group, like, you can make massive generalizations. And I don't want to do that. Sure. I don't want to make the generalization that working class people like sport and don't like high culture because that's not my experience and that's not uh, the reality mm. but there is very much a cultural cringe towards rugby league within progressive circles and within the media like mm. and, and that's why news corp tap into it so well because the people that they're trying to win over are people who you know <laughs> see sport as life or death mm. And so they're very comfortable with that dismissiveness towards 
sport, but especially, yeah, rugby league. And, you know, that's why I've written about it before. Like, I, I've come across that classism towards rugby league a million times, like the mm. times that I've forgotten about. Like, it's just so regular and prevalent. And at times I've felt it myself and I tried to pander to it in some ways. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it's, it's not me being the, the enlightened one who, who has is totally devoid of judgment mm. or whatever. Like, I've certainly internalised a lot of the classes and towards rugby league and it meant that as a teenager I probably stopped being as passionate about it as what I would have been if I hadn't have experienced that. Yeah, and me too probably. I, I can think of instances when I've been within certain circles of people where, I don't know, rugby league comes up in a kind of denigrating way and then, you know, they'll ask, you know, Jono, do you like rugby league? And I'll be like, oh... You know, I watch it sometimes, you know, whereas obviously <laughs> the truth is, you know, I'm obsessed with it. I'm watching it, you know, seven games a week and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I've done the same. So I, I cannot uh, judge too harshly either. Just, I guess, on to, a, I guess, a broader topic when it comes to rugby league and larrikinism. Do you think the pull of the larrikin in Australia goes some way to explaining rugby league's pull in the Australian rugby states over the past 113 years? Obviously, there are several intertwining explanations for a sport's place in a culture, but is our love of the larrikin part of the mix, do you think? Yeah, it's like a chicken and egg argument, isn't it? Like, that explains a lot. This is the whole point that that drives at, is that that's why rugby league was so successful in Queensland and New South Wales, is it had broad-scale support because it was a working-class sport and working-class were a lot larger group of people. Class has become a lot harder to distinguish and you could talk for the whole podcast about the meaning of class and social mm. class in Australia and the way that it's changed. But like that's why rugby league has survived in the way that it has in Australia and ha- doesn't really have that broad scale support anywhere else except mm. for PNG mm. uh, and the Cook Islands. But like, I, I think it'd be too simplistic. You know, Peter Beattie has that quote where he's like, rugby league is the Ned Kelly sport, like basically, like it's like the convict sport. And does that mean that's why it succeeded in Queensland and New South Wales? Because they're sort of regarded as two of the convict states. Uh, I don't know whether it's that simple because mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes that conflict and ancestry can be like overstated as well. Like I'm not sure that there's quite as many, you know, descendants of convicts walking around as it sometimes seems now that um, that's all become quite like, it's become so socially acceptable to claim that yeah. lineage. But yeah, like that's, there, there is a difference in the culture of, say, Victoria compared to New South Wales and Queensland, like that going right back throughout their histories. And, mm. and that's why rugby league thrived in, in those two states, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one because obviously most rugby cities, it's the union code that is the dominant code. It's the, you know, the code of the, the people with money and power and things like that. So it is interesting to try work out why in, in these two cities, they're the ones that kind of have bucked the trend. And it's obviously something to do with the huge working class population of the time where it came out. But to, to maintain that that kind of dominance over over 100 years or more, it's quite interesting. And I don't have the answer, obviously. And, and, and that's like the le- – like I, I didn't want to go into it because I didn't want to make the essay too much about rugby league versus rugby yeah. union. Yeah, yeah. But that is the lesson for – you know, it's not it's not totally black and white, but that's one of the lessons for the Labor Party is that like rugby union was a sport that was content just appealing to a certain social class of people and saw, I guess, the world through this superiority complex mm. – and it's led to the issues that rugby union is now grappling with, which is that it's this never achieved broad scale support within Queensland or New South Wales outside of a very sort of select social class and outside of a very sort of select uh, few areas. So if you're only drawing or appealing to that that narrow section of people, 
that's the ball game for politics yeah. anyway. Like you may as well give up. Like you, you can't just decide what people will like. You need to actually adapt to it, and that doesn't mean you know joining a race to the bottom with the Liberal Party over issues of race or mm. over issues of immigration. But mm. it is just something to be really mindful about when you're in the way that you talk about issues and the way that you craft policy. It, it's it's one thing to just tell people what's good for them and it's another thing to actually bring them along with you yeah yeah now how closely linked is the concept of the larrikin do you think with rugby league you know tom rudonicus al langer the list goes on and how does the the changing terrain of the larrikin with all the politics around it which you've mentioned how does that map on to the game of rugby league will, will the future of the australian larrikin help determine the future character of rugby league is it that inextricably linked like I think, as you said, like it is. That's like the whole ethos of the sport. You, you pick out some prominent examples who are like full-blown larrikins, but to a certain extent, all of the players are conforming to some sort of larrikin style, and that's that's the reason why a lot of people love it, and that's the reason why a lot of people hate it. Like if you look at the, the social origins of the modern AFL player, it's, that's a sport that's changed significantly, mm. and that changes the way that the players look, and it changes the way that the players talk, and it changes their appeal to corporate Australia. And so it's interesting now because that's why the the case study of rugby league has become so interesting. Is that, and I explored that in the essay with that I wrote for the monthly about the NRL, which is that this lack of class barriers allowed rugby league to be stigmatised by a lot of progressive people for a long time Mm. has actually allowed rugby league to be a lot more racially progressive than well any of the other sports in australia at least the at least rugby union certainly and Mm. also the afl but it also more more racially inclusive than australian politics or Mm. the australian media there's more than 50 percent of the players in the rl now either black or or polynesian descent so this lack of barriers and this lack of sort of just drawing from elite private schools has allowed rugby league to really lead the way in terms of, and it hasn't been perfect. Mm. There's been issues, but definitely has, has led the other sports and provided this really, in some ways, spontaneous sort of like egalitarianism and the ability to, to really bring all these players through from from different racial origins to the traditional larrikin but a lot of these players who are coming through who are of polynesian or aboriginal descent are very much still trademark larrikins if anything they're actually the players now that you would associate as as being larrikins Mm -hmm. and what i find interesting after reading your essay is that obviously we've discussed the there's kind of a battle for what is a larrikin. You know, it could go down a couple of paths. It could go down the uh, Rowan Dean larrikin route and it could be co-opted by, you know, people who are trying to take advantage one way or another or it could, you know, remain true to its its original sense of, of what it was to be a larrikin. And I wonder if it goes down one or the other path, whether rugby league would be influenced either way or, or rugby league will always be what it is and whether larrikin is still a, an accurate descriptor rugby league's essence will remain the same whether you can still call people like rugby league players larrikins or not well yeah and the other interesting thing that will play out is that i think that rugby league teams and it's already happening will start drawing more and more upon players who went to elite private schools because i i, I don't think rugby union is going to die but if you're at a, a elite rugby league or rugby union player even if you're going to a gps school in sydney or brisbane i, I think that your eyes are on the nrl now like it's like mm. Ten years ago, there might still have been a, a question mark, but I think now your, your path really is with rugby league and then maybe later you, you can explore your options in terms of French rugby union or if you're of 
New Zealand mm. descent, then you might want to switch over to play uh, rugby union in New Zealand and try and crack the All Blacks. But I don't think anyone's, or you know, at that elite level is is, is really dreaming of playing for the Waratahs or or the Brumbies or the Rebels or, mm. or the Reds. And so that's where you're seeing this influx of players who, who went to those schools, and, and that that's having an effect. I mean, it's not all bad either. Like I, I think that there's you know, the the larrikin trades of rugby league players have produced like a huge number of issues as well. Mm. But yeah, it's just super interesting. Like one of the interesting things that happened recently that sort of highlighted all of this was that they released that petition from elite sports people about climate change. Mm. And there was, I think there must have only been half a dozen rugby league players or NRL players, and there was yeah. over a hundred. There was over a hundred AFL players. Like it might have even been like two hundred. And the, I think that the only league players who had signed it were, were ones who had been to GPS schools or at least private schools. Yeah, right. And I, I don't actually, you know, it's chicken and egg thing again. Like I, I don't think that that's just that that you need to go to those schools to care about climate change i think it's probably that the organizers were from that those sort of origins and so it just made it easier for them to communicate with people that they have a connection with but the great irony of that is that if you're a climate change activist in australia Mm. and you want to like change the face of australian politics in to be in favor of climate change the Mm. seats that you're going to want to do that in are rugby league seats like it's like the hunter central queensland and north queensland Mm. that's like where you have the really tangible effect so you can have as many like GPS educated AFL players signing this thing, but it's like, is that actually going to make that much of a difference with the people that you need to win over? That's right. Or the people who are directly affected by it, who are, have family in the Pacific Islands or mm. who have, whose parents are from the Pacific Islands and can speak directly to that lived experience of, of climate change. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I, that's not. Uh, I, I don't know the process that they went through. Maybe they did try to. Yeah, I, I did hear an interview with Clint Newton, the Rugby League Players Association head, and he was asked about it, and he said basically that you know, like you said, it, the way it was kind of organised, not many people knew much about it, and you know they were busy with this and that, and so it was probably more about who the organisers knew than anything else. But you're absolutely right that if you're going to push that sort of thing, you would hope the organisers would think of these things. And, and Clint Newton did make the point of the Pacific and, you know, the rising sea levels and how that's affecting many of the, the rugby league players and their families. So he said it was very relevant. It's just that, you know, it, it didn't really figure much or not many people knew about it or something like that. So that, I think that's interesting. And, and also, I guess, going back to your, your point previously about, you know, winning seats, if you're going to try to convince people that climate change is real and you're trying to flip a seat maybe you're going to try to to become a larrikin or something but the problem is you're not going to be allowed to become a larrikin because you are promoting something like climate change you know the the media will sort of say oh you know you're a latte sipper or whatever that might be you don't care about people so that's, that's a tricky one isn't it if, if you start talking about something like climate change automatically you're not a larrikin really anymore well, it's the, the, because the paradigm in mm. thanks to the news corp is that you're a lefty yeah you're a greenie you're a which is like elite. yeah that, and like you're politically correct like i was i went on the drum recently and the i was presenting basically this thesis and someone on there was basically said oh you know this is a problem with the left is that they're all just obsessed with cultural appropriation and microaggressions and just put all these like phrases in my mouth and i was just like <laughs> I don't know what you're talking like, uh, and that's partly me being naive because I, I'm not someone who has spent a whole heap of time in 
politically correct environment. So, like, mm. I, like I, I don't know all the, the language and that can sometimes be, that, like, that's something that I need to probably work on in some ways. But, yeah, it, it was just so, I thought it was just so revealing because it sort of just showed the way that someone who hadn't read the essay, someone who didn't really know anything about my own background in terms of growing up in country Queensland or in pubs mm. or around people who were absolutely not politically correct. Mm. The Yeah, that because I was promoting what they saw as like left-wing values or left-wing economic policies, that meant that I was like a politically correct inner city lefty. Yeah, it's, it's a set defense, isn't there? Yeah, and, that's, and it's been really successful. Yeah. Well, Lek, don't change. Don't change for you. <laughs> don't change a thing for me, okay? It's, a, it's a, a fascinating topic to chew on and your essay is the perfect meat and potatoes meal for us to really get stuck into what it was, is, and perhaps shall be to be a larrikin in Australia and in rugby league in Australia, whatever that means. And it's great timing because obviously, uh, because South have made the grand final and it'll be interesting to see whether, um, yeah, it's like the the perfect opportunity for, for Albanese to just go full yeah. Rabideau fan and tell that story. And, and maybe, you know, the Labor Party in some ways has been saving a lot of their policies for basically when the election was going to happen. Maybe maybe that's what he's waiting for. He's saving his powder. He doesn't want the story to get too old or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. I, hopefully I'd, I'd love to see him just go full rabbit fan, <laughs> psycho. Yeah, it could be the flowering of Albo if there's a, a South Sydney victory this week. Totally, yeah, it might, yeah. All right, well, uh, Lech Plain, fantastic essay. Congratulations, and thanks so much for joining us on the Progressive Rugby League podcast. No worries. Thanks, mate. Progressive Rugby League. Cool. I hope you enjoyed that, ladies and gentlemen. Lek is a, a great storyteller, and this essay is a good one. It's a must-read, in my opinion, and it's just the best title, Top Blokes. Google quarterly essay, and you'll find it. All right, let's wrap this thing up. It has been a pleasure, as always, and in case there was any doubt, the pleasure has been all mine, all of it. Until we next meet somewhere in a rugby league beer queue guzzling a lager, rugby league Colby, and see ya.